You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, today's title is Empathy for the Church. We're looking at uh, Paul. He's continuing through his letter here. He started out really wanting to encourage the church in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, he held his own life forth as an example to believers because the church being so new, they were looking for an example. Hey, how do we do this thing? How do we live out our Christian faith? Paul says, here's my life as an example. And then here in chapter 3, he's heard of the suffering that's going on in the church in Thessalonica, and he's empathetic towards them. He has a heart of understanding. His heart is going out to them, and he's actually hurting as they are hurting. In fact, empathy is the action of understanding. Jot that down if you didn't know the definition of empathy this morning. It's the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing. This is an important part of the definition. Vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another. Vicariously feeling or uh, experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another. That's what empathy is. Husbands, jot that one down. Wives, jot that one down. That's how we're to, and we're going to see in here, Paul has a heart of empathy. Now, nobody likes to get stuck with a needle. Amen? For vaccinations, for medical dinner procedures, don't you guys hate getting stuck with needles? I I don't enjoy it myself. Uh, It's even worse, though, when you have to watch your babies go through it, isn't it? I'm giving you an illustration of empathy right here, just in case you didn't know that. You feel like a traitor, don't you? You're there in the doctor's office, smiling, soothing, cooing to that little baby, trying to make him think everything's okay. While in the background, there's a four-inch needle being brandished in the air, right? You know, and they're clicking it, and you're, you're trying to make them feel comfortable. And then they stick them with that needle, and that smile suddenly disappears, The the eyes that were looking at you once full of trust and love, there's a little bit of shadow of a doubt of betrayal that enters into that baby's eyes as they're looking at you. And then that lower lip begins to tremble, doesn't it? You know, it just starts shaking. And you're looking at him, you go, I'm so sorry. And then that cry breaks out and breaks your heart, right? That's empathy. When you are vicariously experiencing the feelings of that little baby who's getting a shot there at the doctor's office, you hate it for him. And yet, we know it's part of their life, isn't it? And so we think, hey, you're just going to have to get used to this. You're going to have to learn how to count milk cartons or something, you know, or count sheep in your head or do something. Go, go to your happy place while that needle is being poked into your arm or wherever it is. First Thessalonians chapter 3 is an example of empathy. For every father and mother here today who knows what it's like to watch a child suffer, Paul the Apostle identifies with you. Jesus Christ identifies with you. And not just Paul and Jesus. Every pastor who's ever pastored a congregation of people in the name of Jesus knows what this feels like. It's every parent who's ever lived the prodigal son or daughter story. It's every older sibling or older brother or sister who's had to stick up for their younger sibling. When we watch others suffer, our heart goes out to them. And unfortunately, guys, suffering is part of our life experiences. It's unavoidable. 
And here Paul, he knows that. He knows that the church at Thessalonica is suffering. He knows they have to go through it, yet he still, he, he, he doesn't like it. And he's reaching out to them. He wants them to be okay. That's what ministry is all about. It's the heart of God for you. That's what you're going to see in chapter 3 here today is God's heart for you. He has an, a heart of empathy, a heart that is vicariously experiencing what you're going through and wants you to get through it. And he wants you to get through it stronger than when you began. Now, Paul shows us at least three things in this chapter today that reveal to us what it means to have a heart for the body of Christ. First, we're going to see that Paul was distressed for their devotion. And of course, I mean to the Lord. Their devotion to the Lord. Paul was distressed for their devotional life with Jesus. Verse 1. He says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. Let's pause here for a second. Right away, we see that Paul is so anxious about the believers in Thessalonica, having left them in a hurry, having left them in the middle of a persecution for their faith, and he's distressed to see how they're doing. He knows the church is going through tough things. And he wants to come to them. And so in his distress, he, 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 it gets so bad. He's so worried for the church in Thessalonica that he is now willing to make sacrifices for their benefit. Isn't that a sign that you truly care for somebody, that you truly love somebody, that you're willing to lay your life down for them to some degree? making a sacrifice for that person. Well, that's where Paul gets to. Think about this for a second. Now, Paul cannot go himself. God has moved him out of that city. He can't go back because of the persecution of the Jews there. He'll get killed. And so God has moved him on. God has another door for him that he's to walk through, and he's now in Athens to preach the gospel. All of this is taking place in Acts chapter 17. Remember, that's the history behind this, this passage of Thessalon uh, the letters to the Thessalonians. And so Paul knows he's going to have to send Timothy and Silas, his most trusted ministry partners, to go to them. And that means that Paul is going to have to face the philosophers of Athens by himself. He's going to have to face the next mission alone. Now, some of you guys might think, oh, that's no big deal. But let me tell you guys something. When you are a minister of the gospel for Jesus Christ, there is a target on your back. And Satan comes after you. There is spiritual warfare like you would not understand. And so Paul knows, I'm stepping out on my own to go preach the gospel in a city full of philosophers who are smart, capable, intelligent. And, and I'm going to have to stand before them by myself without a surrounding brothers to hold my hands up and to give me support and encouragement when I need it. That's difficult. So Paul is making a big sacrifice by sending Timothy and Silas back to Thessalonica. But Paul, it, it, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Paul's, remember Paul's the guy who tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, to be anxious in nothing? Didn't, don't you remember when he said that? Hey, be anxious for nothing, he said. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That's the same guy who wrote those verses. And here we see him in Thessalonians. He's worried beyond, I mean, he's, he's, he's going crazy. He's so worried, he's so anxious for the well-being of this church that he can't stand it anymore. He's willing now to make a sacrifice for their good, so he's going to send them some qualified individuals. 
Get that? He's going to send them some qualified individuals that can minister on his behalf. He doesn't just send whoever. He doesn't just pick some guy who's a brand new convert. No, he picks his two best disciples that he's been pouring into and raised up. And he says, these are the guys that are going to minister to you in my name. And he sends them. Now, in verse 2, we see the heart of a pastor for his people. Look at verse 2 with me. So he sends Timothy, our brother and minister of God. Let's, let's read verse 1 and 2 together there. It says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Notice that Paul speaks very highly of his younger protege, Timothy, here. He's giving him, or he's giving the church in Thessalonica his very best. And that's a great example. When we can't be there to encourage or help someone ourselves, make sure you send someone who's qualified to represent you. Notice that Paul's heart is, number one, that he wants to establish and encourage them in their faith. I want to define those terms. They're very important terms. This is the heart of a pastor. Okay? This is the heart of a pastor. He wants to establish. That word establish in the Greek language means to set fast, to turn resolutely in a certain direction. The heart of a true pastor is to take the people of his congregation and to turn them resolutely towards Christ. That you would set your faces and hearts on pursuing Jesus Christ. And that would be your pursuit for the rest of your life. That is my heart as a pastor for this congregation. That you guys would set your faces resolutely to the path of discipleship and following Jesus Christ. And you would not waver from that pursuit your entire lives. Secondly, Paul wants to encourage them. That word encourage means to call near to invite or invoke a response or action. Notice that is also a pastor's heart. A pastor is one that you should feel comfortable with drawing near to. He calls you near. Hey, I'm your shepherd. I love you. I want what's best for you, and I'm going to call you near to me, and then I'm going to invite you to respond correctly. I'm going to invite you to do the right thing. I'm going to invite you to, to, to make the right choice here. That's, that's what a pastor... That's what a pastor's heart for his people is, and that's the heart that Paul had. Now, why would Paul need to seek to do these things? Why would he need to establish and encourage them? We find out in the next verse, it's because of what they were facing. Verse 3 says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. The reason Paul seeks to establish and encourage the folks there is because he knows they're going to face affliction. Christians, let me tell you, you've heard it before, you know this, especially if you've been a part of this church for a while. Just because we're Christians does not exempt us from the suffering, the hardships, the afflictions of this world. We know. Paul warned his people, I'm warning you, we know we will suffer tribulation in this world. That's the reality for those who follow Jesus Christ. It's a reality. It's a reality is that you will face suffering. Now, let me tell you this. There isn't anything else to say except what Jesus said. If you'll flip over to John chapter 16, verse 33. 
in your Bible this morning or type it into your phone there, your phone Bible. John 16, verse 33. I want to read that with you. John 16, 33. Jesus said this. He said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Listen, that is the tension of a believer's life. You are in Jesus, yes, but you're also living in the world. And in the world, you'll have tribulation. In Jesus, you have peace. But in this world, we're going to have tribulation. We are going to face affliction and hardship and trial. And, but be of good cheer, Jesus says, because know this, I've overcome those things. I've overcome the world. Jesus identifies with you. He went through this, and he overcame it. He overcame Now, contrary to popular belief today, not all suffering produces bad results. In other words, not all suffering is wrong. There is suffering. The Bible tells us, the Bible shows us that suffering can produce good things in your life and in my life. And so suffering, contrary to popular belief, is not to be avoided at all costs. We need to Uh, uh, allow suffering to run its course in our lives and in fact the bible's perspective is simply realistic hardship is inevitable because of sin because of evil suffering is part of our world and if you are a follower of jesus christ here this morning then difficulty and suffering will mark your life simply because get this suffering and hardship will mark your life simply because you are alive to god and dead to sin that simple fact alone will bring hardship and suffering into your life Jesus promised it but that can produce a refined character and a refined faith that will last for eternity and in fact that's what God is doing in many of our lives right now today the strategy of Satan is to get you to minimize suffering at all costs no we're gonna do whatever we can to stay comfortable we're going to do whatever we can to just not have to, you know, tilt the boat and, and, and upset the, the status quo. Satan uses pressure to get believers to shrink back from sharing their faith and shining their light and standing for what is right. He uses fear and temptation and sin to hold you back from shining forth the truth in the midst of the dark world that we live in. And ultimately, Satan wants much, much more than that. Look at verse 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, Paul says, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. What is Paul implying? Paul is telling us that Satan's strategy is to tempt you to fall away, ultimately. He'll use persecution. He'll use church people. He'll use substances. He'll use the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. Satan will use apathy. He'll use comfort. And right now, he's even trying to distract you from listening to this message this morning. You'd be surprised how many times I have to tell people in this church to read their Bible and pray every single day, even though I just told you again from the pulpit to do it, didn't I? But how many of you go throughout your week without reading your Bibles or praying daily? 
is spending time with the Lord in the Word, meditating, receiving, having a relationship with the Holy Spirit and the Lord through the Scriptures of God. And then we wonder why we're weak when the temptation hits. We wonder why we fall. We wonder why we're so miserable. Hey, I'll tell you why. It's because Satan is distracting us. Know this, Satan wants to divide you from Jesus Christ. He wants your faith to become cold and die. He wants to claim your soul in hell one day. Make no mistake about it. This is not a game. Thank God for the power of Jesus' name and the seal of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? Thank God for the weapons of spiritual warfare that God gives us to fight back. He gives us worship. He gives us prayer. He gives us the memorization of Scripture. Those are the weapons of our warfare. The battleground is the mind. Jesus came to bring peace, but Satan came to kill and destroy. There are times, guys, in my life when I have to stop what I'm doing and quote Scripture to fight temptation. I get tempted just like all of you guys. So you think about your life, you think about your temptations that you face, I get it too. I'm just like you. I put my pants on the same way every morning. Guess what? I have to quote scripture to fight off that temptation sometimes in my life. There are times when I have to worship God to keep the enemy away. I have to turn on music on my phone. Worship music and begin to pour out my heart and worship to God. If I don't, I'll be overwhelmed by the temptation of fall into sin. There are times when I have to go to prayer to resist the temptations of the devil. I got to get up and go and say, no, I got to walk and pray right now. Because if I don't, I'm going to fall. And guess what? I don't always win the battle, but thank goodness that Jesus Christ won the war. The second thing that we see about Paul's empathy for the church is that he delighted for their faithfulness. Verse 6, he delighted for their faithfulness. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. In other words, Timothy went, he heard a good report, he came back to Paul. He brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Notice Paul places an emphasis here on the importance of keeping a good relationship. That's in verse 6. He's so happy. He's so relieved that they still have a good memory of him and that they still want to see him. You know, that church in Thessalonica, they could have complained about Paul's coming to start the church and then leaving them behind to face hardships alone. They could have gotten bitter towards him. They could have allowed their feelings to keep them from gathering with the rest of the believers. But instead, they were faithful. They were plowing and plodding ahead in their faith. Oh, church, my prayer is that you will do the same. That this church will do the same. This church will be known as a church that is faithful to the Lord, plowing ahead, plodding in the will of God for your lives. One day at a time. That means everything to me. And of course it meant everything to Paul when he heard that the church at Thessalonica had a good fond memory of him. And that's the best comfort for a pastor's heart. There in verse 7 and 8. That's the best comfort for a pastor's heart, 
The best thing that you guys could ever give me as your pastor is a solid walk with Jesus. I just want to see all of you standing firm in your faith, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, that would make my heart glad. And for the most part, many of you are. But what hurts, what hurts really bad is not when somebody says something or somebody goes to a different church. I understand that's going to happen. And and what matters the most to me is our relationship. Even if you go somewhere else, it's the relationship that matters in your walk with the Lord that I really want to see. But what hurts the most is when somebody says, no, my faith is going cold, and I'm stepping away, and I'm distracted, and I'm going to let go. Man, that hurts. It's no fun. The greatest gift that you could ever give your pastor is to stand firm, to stand fast in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's also the greatest gift that my children can ever give me. I want my children, I want to see that they know and are walking with Jesus according to the word of God. College? Of course. I want them to go to college. That's not my main thing, though. That's not my main focus as a dad. Career? Well, yeah, I'm raising my kids to be responsible, hardworking, faithful citizens, I hope. But that's not my greatest desire. My greatest desire as a father is to impart godly character into my children. I I desire to see them knowing the Lord and walking in His will according to His word. And you want to know how that happens? They have to see me walking it first. They have to see me having a real relationship with the Lord first. They have to see me coming to them sometimes and saying, I blew it, I'm sorry, I lost my temper with you. Will you forgive me? The the, the Lord came and spoke to me and and convicted me. The Holy Spirit showed me I was wrong. In fact, the Lord disciplined me. (laughs) You know, I give you spankings sometimes. The Lord gives me spankings too. He gives me spankings too. Listen, it's about standing fast in the Lord. That is it. That is the greatest thing in the world. And guess what? It's the only thing that will matter in eternity. It's the only thing that will matter. So as we've seen so far, an empathetic heart for hurting people, for God's people, is going to, number one, be distressed for their devotion. You're going to care about what their devotional life looks like, the relationship with Jesus. Secondly, it's a... uh, Delight for their faithfulness to the Lord. Hey, I'm delighted in the fact that you are here, that you're studying the word, that you're praying, that you're doing these things, that we still have a good relationship. And thirdly, dedicated to praying for their future. Dedicated to praying for their future. Verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. This revelation here shows us Paul's heart for them was to be doing well in the Lord. He desired to perfect whatever was lacking in their faith. Now, the Bible uses two different words, Greek words, for the same English word. The English word perfect or perfect, the Bible uses two different Greek words that have two different meanings. So 
First of all, we need to understand when the Bible uses the word perfect, it rarely is talking about sinless perfection, only when it's in conjunction to Jesus Christ and God. That's sinless perfection. But usually, it's using one of these two Greek words, and the ideas, I want to define, there's two of them. One of the ideas behind perfect or perfect is finished, complete, having reached the goal. That's the first one. And that word is used to describe a man or woman who is spiritually mature, okay? Not someone that has achieved sinless perfection, someone who is spiritually mature. They're unwavering in their faith. They've, they, through experience, through time, through walking with Jesus, they have a strong relationship with the Lord and they don't waver. That's spiritual maturity. Colossians 1.28, I'll read it to you. Colossians 1.28 is an example of that definition of the word perfect. It says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. It means finished or complete. That's that, that's that sense. Now the second one, and this is the one that's used here in this verse in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, means to render fit, to complete, to repair. So in paraphrase, Paul wants to supply what is necessary for their faith to be complete. He's thinking, I want to repair any holes that you have in your faith. My heart is to come alongside of you and to make you stronger in the faith. Guys, that sums up the purpose of a pastor right there. <laughs> a pastor's purpose is to make a long-lasting positive impact in your life that fills in holes in your faith and helps to strengthen you in your walk with the Lord. That should be the heart of you as well. The heart of any of you who call yourselves Christians should be to supply what is necessary in, others, in, in your brothers and sisters around you so that their faith is complete as well. But that means you've got to focus on your walk too. You see, this is the way God has designed it. That all of us in some way would be supplying what is lacking in the body of Christ. Using your gifts, your talents, your resources, your unique your unique life experiences to build up and to edify and strengthen other believers. It's a beautiful thing. It is an amazing thing. So what kind of spiritual strengthening can you supply to your brother or sister? What, 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 what is it that you can supply to the strengthening of the church? Paul finishes this portion of his letter with an example now of how he prays for the church. And I love this. He says in verse 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord in make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notice there in your outline, I've broken down the prayer for you. His prayer is really twofold. First of all, he prays, God, allow me to see them again. Just a simple prayer. Shows you how much he loves them and misses them. God, open the door somehow, someday for me to be able to come back and to see this church. And secondly, he prays that they would increase and abound in love it's all about love. First of all, their love towards God. 
That's the most important love that you can have. If you have a love for God, your love for your neighbor will naturally follow because that's who God is. God is a God who loves his neighbor. And, and so that is by implication first towards God and then towards others. Now the purpose, the purpose of increasing and abounding in love, Paul prays this over them so that their hearts will be established before God in holiness and blamelessness. But let me just put it this way. We could stop by saying the purpose, is, uh, the purpose of increasing and abounding in love is so that their hearts will be established. Hey, there's something to be said there. It is only through the heart being filled with a love for God and then for others that a life is truly established. The word heart in this verse, it means the entire being, the whole person. In other words, our whole person is firmly established only when our love for God is the firm foundation of our lives. This is so good. Please don't miss this. You see, the Bible tells you how you can be healthy and whole, how the gospel heals you. This is something that I think that our our world needs so desperately today. We've got soldiers coming home from the battlefield with post-traumatic stress syndrome, and, and they're messed up. We've got that, you know, we've got mental health issues all throughout society. We've got all kinds of things going on. There's instability and fear and all of, these, all of this depression and things like this in our lives. And the Bible tells us simply that if we will make God our first love, if, we, if our love for him will increase and abound in our lives, it's something that God has to do. God, God works in us to bring that about. But as that happens, our hearts will be established securely on a firm foundation. And and because of our love for Jesus, he makes us holy. He makes us blameless in the sight of God. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's so simple, but it's so profound. In closing today, what does a heart for the hurting look like, biblically speaking? Fathers, mothers, what does a heart for God's people look like life group leaders, Sunday school teachers, pastors? What does a heart for God's church, what is your heart and my heart for other believers to be? Number one, distressed for their devotion to Jesus Christ. Number two, delighted for their faithfulness. And number three, dedicated to praying for their future. Paul said, I pray night and day for you. That doesn't mean that he was down on his knees in his prayer closet not doing anything, you know, any, any good for you know, the, 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 the life that he was trying to sustain and teaching the word to others. No, it means that throughout the day, every time they would pop into his mind, he would lift them up. Lord, I'm praying for this person. Lord, I'm praying for them. Father, would you just get them through this time? Lord, do, do whatever it takes in their life to get them to that place where they're standing firm for you. Father, I just pray that your love would increase and abound in that person's life. That's what it means to pray for their future. How did Paul actually apply this in his life, though? Well, we saw an example of it in the scriptures today. He prayed. Now, we often say, well, the least you can do is pray for someone, right? (laughs) But let, let me tell you, that's the best thing you can do. And it's the first thing that you can do and you should do. You should be praying for that person. If you've got a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter, 
Don't ever give up praying. Now, you might have to do other hard things. You might have to make other tough decisions, cut them off, kick them out. I don't know. Every situation is going to be different. I'm not saying there's a one general rule for all of that. You've got to seek the Lord. But one thing I know you can be doing and you should never stop doing is pray for them. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for this church. Pray for the believers. Pray for the marriages. Pray for the board of elders, the leadership team. Pray for the pastors. We need your prayers. We need to be praying. Secondly, Paul sent someone qualified to minister in his place. Hey, if you can't be there yourself in person, find someone that you can send in your name. Maybe it's their pastor, a local church. Maybe it's your uh, uh, sibling or someone that you know, a mature believer that can go and represent Christ to that person. Thirdly, he wrote them a letter. And I want to ask you guys to commit to something today as, we, as I close this. This is the application part of the Word of God. You see, this all does us no good if we don't go out and apply this. So I'm asking you today to think about committing to writing a letter. I'm asking you to commit today to writing a letter to someone that you know that needs encouragement, someone that you know that you are vicariously experiencing their suffering, their hardship. You know what they're going through. And you want to reach out to them, whether that's with a card, whether that's an actual handwritten letter, or a text, or maybe a social media message. I'll let you decide what's appropriate, what works for you. But I want to ask you to commit to just pray, Lord, who would you have me to write a letter to? Just like Paul did. Paul took the time to write this letter to the church in Thessalonica. He knew they needed it. He knew that they, would, they, they needed to be uplifted in their hearts. And so I just want to ask you guys, who can you encourage? Who does God want to send you to to encourage in that way? Maybe it's your husband or your wife. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's someone you haven't talked to for a while. But you just write them a little note of encouragement. Write them a letter. Tell them you're praying for them in their walk with the Lord. And that what makes you so proud about them is, is something in the, from their spiritual life, their, their walk with Jesus. If they don't know the Lord, tell them, hey, I'm just praying for you. That you'll come to the knowledge of the truth someday. And I want you to know I'm here for you. Whatever it is, but commit to doing the same thing that the Apostle Paul did. To, to, to really pray for them and to write down an encouraging lo- note or letter or text and to send that to them. Because I, I have a feeling, I have a feeling that there's people that need it. Amen? I, I have a feeling that there's people that could use some uplifting in their lives. And you know, I want to close just by saying this is the Lord's heart for you. The Lord has empathy for you. He knows what you're going through. He understands. He loves you. He cares. And he's with you. The Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. We've been sealed by the believer, or by by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit seals us. And so I want you to know that. And, And whatever you're going through, the Lord understands. And he relates to you. And he identifies with you. And he loves you. So be encouraged today to know that. And his heart for you is that you would be encouraged, you'd be lifted up, and that you'd begin to focus, how can I serve others? Not just me. It's not just about me. I've been put here for a purpose. This suffering is doing something in me. It's refining, it's, it's purifying, it's building me, it's strengthening me, and there's a reason for it. There's other hurting people that need you to minister to them. Let's pray.